I am grateful to be with all of you this morning and um, thrilled that Tyler Pace, who pastors our college and young adult ministries, he is preaching in the sanctuary right now for the first time. And so if you were here hoping to hear from Tyler and just want to kind of sneak out, grace upon grace, it's all good. Uh, people who love the church calendar describe this or refer to this um, these days coming out of Easter as Easter tide. It's this 50-day period uh, where we don't just kind of hang up all the Easter decorations and celebrations, but we linger and we stay in that place of rejoicing and celebrating in Jesus' victory over sin and death. So there you go. If Grandma asked what you learned in church today, Easter tide. And one of the ways we experience the presence of the resurrected Christ is through prayer. Now, what is prayer? Here's a simple definition from Dallas Willard. He says, prayer is communicating with God about what we are doing together. It's conversing, listening to, and yes, talking with God about what we're doing together. Uh, Dallas Willard goes on to say, back when me and God weren't doing anything together, we didn't have anything to talk about. But when we enter into a relationship with God, we're going to talk to him and listen to him just like we would anyone else who matters deeply to us. And then in this conversation of prayer, what we find is that over time, we're increasingly caught up in the things that matter to God, that are near to the heart of God and what God wants to see done in this world. That's prayer. And I know it sounds so simple. And if we were to probably go around the, the room and just ask a diff different folks, would you agree with that? Would you resonate with that? It would be yes, yes, absolutely, you bet. The problem, and Dallas goes on to say this about prayer, is that the open secret of many Bible-believing churches is that a vanishingly small percentage of those talking about prayer are actually doing what they're talking about. It's like this gap between what we know is important, it's essential to the Christian life, and, and yet we don't actually get around to doing it. Even our leaders, even me, I was thinking in the lead up to this how every once in a while I just find myself getting stuck in that familiar um, kind of rote prayer routine, right? The same sort of routines and, and the things that I normally just do every day, the, they don't seem to have the same significance and they, they don't, it doesn't feel like I'm making a difference. And so what can happen is that we end up giving up on prayer because it feels routine or boring or frustrating. I know this is not true for any of you in the house today, but it has been true for me. The writer Ken Boa talks about two extremes when it comes to prayer. Uh, first extreme, all form and no freedom. And second extreme, all freedom and no form. These two extremes when it comes to prayer. The first, all form and no freedom is where, you know, it can become rote and impersonal and, and almost hollow and we lose interest and passion. The second extreme, all freedom and no form, can actually lead to a kind of undisciplined approach to prayer that, that ends up sounding a little bit more like, gimme, 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 I need, I need, I need. And so one of the practices that we've been exploring in this series is, is praying scripture back to God, allowing the text of scripture to give us language and words and vocabulary to shape our prayers. The Bible is full of prayers. 
some 650 prayers through its pages, and they give us words, the, the words that we need for every circumstance in life. Last week, we looked at Isaiah's great prayer, real simple prayer, five words from Isaiah 6. Here I am. Use me. Okay, that's a bold prayer. Five simple words, but if we're willing to pray like that, our lives are going to get interesting. Here I am, God. Use me. Send me. You pray like that, and your life may never be the same. It may get harder. What strikes me about that prayer, that kind of prayer, it's not domesticated or soft or sedate. Sometimes we think about praying or even, you know, we think about the prayer groups and we're kind of like, okay, that's sort of the wimpy stuff. Which is why in so many prayer, in, in so many churches, the prayer meeting is always the smallest meeting in the church. Okay, that's just sort of the boring stuff. And I don't want to have anything to do with that. Which I might add, almost the opposite is happening here. Teach me how to pray. These different prayer cohorts are growth courses on prayer. I mean, we can't find rooms big enough in the church for all the people that want to be a part of this. Prayer is not soft or sedate. It is an adventure. It is stepping into the risk of not knowing where God might send you and lead you. It is taking new ground in this battle where we join God against the forces of evil. Nothing about that is sedate. This is partly why I have a love-hate relationship with that phrase, quiet time. You ever heard people talk about you know, their, their practice of daily prayer as a quiet time? Not that you have to come up with a new phrase if that's something that you're really enamored with, but when it comes to prayer, yes, it might involve having to kind of quiet ourselves in such a hurried world so that we can listen to the voice of our Father, but it's not meant to put us to sleep. It's meant to wake us up to what God is doing in this world. So last week it was, here I am, here I am, use me. And today at the end of the sermon, we're going to close with another five-word prayer. I am yours, send me. I am yours, save me. And we're going to let that scripture sort of shape our prayers together. So I would love for you, if you have a Bible, to open up to Psalm 119. This is the prayer book of the Bible, the Psalms, these ancient prayers that give us language for every circumstance in life. It was St. Athanasius, the great uh, African theologian of the fourth century, who said, most of scripture speaks to us. The Psalms speak for us. For the last couple years, our staff team up on the third floor, we've been gathering together every morning. It's just kind of an optional, if you'd like to join. And um, we've just seen that group grow um, through the last couple years of our staff coming together every morning during the week. And often what we'll do is uh, someone will lead by opening up the Psalms and we'll, we'll walk through a Psalm together and allow it to sort of guide the way that we pray for one another. And I can't tell you how many times we leave that sort of huddle at the beginning of the day and people are just like, wow, I didn't realize, but those were exactly the words that I needed today, like to help me know how to pray We think about all the Psalms that have meant so much to us, milestones and key moments and even just some of the trenches that we've gone through in life. The Lord is my shepherd. Yea, though I walk, Psalm 23. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Psalm 121. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know my inmost thoughts. Psalm 139. And then you come to Psalm 119, which is the longest uh, psalm in the Bible, 176 verses, takes about 25 minutes to read out loud, so we're going to go ahead and start. (laughs) Um, This was the first text that a young Jewish boy 
would learn and try to memorize by heart as, um, as he was studying to become uh, a student of a rabbi in the first century. William Wilberforce, who's known as uh, helping to, to abolish slavery in Great, Great Britain, he memorized Psalm 119 and would recite it every day on his walk from Parliament back to his home in Hyde Park, which is pretty impressive, I might add there, memorizing all 176 verses. So let me read a few of these verses. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. I delight in your commands because I love them. The law from your mouth is is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver or gold. That's verse 72. And then if you go down to verse 89... Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness extends to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Question, did anybody, as we were reading through that, did anybody get the sense that the the writer of the psalm kind of was repeating himself? Right, it, it sounds a little bit like that, but surprisingly, over the course of 176 verses, no, one ver, uh, no verse is the same. Right, this psalm is carefully crafted in such a way there are no repetitions. Each verse is like a slightly new angle on all the ways we can delight in God's teachings in his word. Now, those of you who like order and careful design, this is your kind of psalm. There are 22 stanzas. Each stanza has eight lines. And each line of each stanza begins with the same letter, one for each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So the writer begins with the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, And he prays through what that letter is stirring in his soul. Eight different prayers. Then he moves on to the second letter in the alphabet, bet. And he prays through what that begins to stir in his soul. And he goes on throughout the Hebrew alphabet until the last letter of the alphabet, tav. It's a little like those acrostics that maybe your kids bring home from kindergarten or first grade and, you know, where the teacher writes mommy on one side of the page and then they go in an M-O-M and they, you know, write phrases that begin with M-O-M and when it's mommy, it's always just this like amazing, encouraging, life-giving, like you are just the best thing that's ever happened to me. And then a few weeks later, they do the same exercise with daddy and it's like D doesn't cook, A Ask too many questions when I come home from school. D drives too fast and just, you know, you get the idea. So that Psalm 119, that's kind of the structure here. It's all about delighting in God's law, which I can imagine for some of us doesn't really make sense. Why, why would we delight in law? Not that we don't like laws, it's just not something we normally think to delight in. Uh, One of the reasons people on the outside looking in think Christianity is restrictive and legalistic, sadly, is because so many Christians, for so many of us, this this is how we've treated the law. Uh, A friend of mine says it like this, we don't delight in the law of the Lord, we delight in keeping it better than other people. 
Phil Yancey, in his uh, great book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he puts it this way. I came out of a Southern fundamentalist culture that frowned on co-ed swimming, wearing shorts, jewelry, makeup, dancing, bowling. Alcohol was a sin of a different order with the sulfurous stench of hellfire about it. No short skirts for women, no long hair for men, no polka dot dresses for women because they might draw attention to suggestive body parts, no kissing, no holding hands, no rock music, no facial hair. It all, it all calls to mind the dog who thought his name was no because that's the only word he ever heard from his master. And maybe that's part of your story and what you've experienced of religion. There's a historian named William Manchester who's highlighted some of the no's that came out of John Calvin's uh, Geneva. John Calvin's kind of a, a founding leader of the Presbyterian movement. No feasting, no dancing, no singing, pictures, statues, relics, church bells, no organs, no altar candles, irreligious songs, no attending theatrical plays, no wearing rouge, lace, or a modest dress, or naming children after anyone but Old Testament figures. Right? And so it's understandable that some might think that religious laws are meant to keep us from de delight, not something that we would actually delight in. It's just no after no after no. It's restrictive, and mostly it keeps me from being able to be me, which is kind of a growing voice in our day. Anything that keeps me from being true to my authentic self, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And not to get derailed by this, but just imagine, say, you're driving down to Waco, and a policeman pulls you over for speeding, and uh, you kindly explain to the officer, look, I just don't feel my truest self when I'm going 70 miles an hour. <laughs> when I drive and I truly listen to my inner voice, my inner voice tells me, you can go 80, you should go, or you should go 90. So Mr. Officer, please don't impose your laws on me. We have a word for people like that. Speeders. Imagine the IRS calling you and they say, you haven't paid your taxes in seven years and you respond to them. I get that paying taxes maybe may work for other people, but not for me. It wouldn't be authentic to my truest self because the government doesn't reflect my deepest held values. Please don't impose your rules on my money. Okay, we have a phrase for people who do that. Tax evaders or arrested or whatever you want to say. Imagine a man who's dating a woman and they're out for a nice romantic dinner and during the meal he says to her, you know, this whole being faithful to only one person at a time thing is just too restricting. When I'm truly in touch with my deepest sense of self, I need to be free to respond when I see a really attractive woman. And so one exclusive language, it's just uh, one exclusive relationship, it's just too imposing for me. Right? We have a word for that kind of guy. And we're not going to go there, but you just... <laughs> so we often consider laws as limiting our freedom because it's just one thou shalt not after another. What we really do is we jump in our mind to thou shalt not be happy, thou shalt not enjoy, thou shalt definitely not have fun. And so God becomes this cosmic bouncer keeping us out of a really good party. Christopher Hitchens was a well-known atheist author, and he wrote a book called God is Not Great. Here's what Hitchens said. If the Bible were true, it would be a disaster because it would mean living eternally under a divine totalitarian despot. It would be like living in a celestial North Korea, but worse, because at least you can die and get out of North Korea. Don't you think he needs a vacation or something? 
Okay, and in the 930 service, I actually said North Carolina instead of North Korea, which was just, I don't know where that's coming, but I'm, where that's coming from, but it was just like, wow. Okay, bringing us back to Psalm 119. The God revealed to us in Scripture and through his laws is not one who exists to steal our freedom, to oppress us, to hold us into this straight jacket so that he can rule over us like a dictator. His law is not another form of bondage. Rather, it's like a blueprint from our creator. This is how I made you. This is who you are. This is the way forward toward a, a, a fuller and freer life with me. We read the law saying, this is what you can't do. This is what you have to. God gives the law saying, this is who you are. And just one example. First place we so often jump when we start talking about God's law is the Ten Commandments. Which, by the way, they're not known um, in the Jewish tradition as the Ten Commandments. They're the Ten Statements. They're statements. They're declarations of how you and I were designed to live. Which, just to look at the first one, first commandment, here's how it begins. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Where's, where's the restriction there? No, the first commandment, right out of the gate, doesn't begin with a rule. It begins with, with God announcing a relationship. I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who sets you free. Now, one other real important angle on God's law. And I know this has been a little bit more content heavy than normal, but this is the Elliott Hall worship gathering. You guys can handle this. Psalm 119, it, it talks about delighting in God's law, in the Torah, in his word. And for us, 3,000 years after this prayer was written, we can't help but, but read this in light of the New Testament. The opening words of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God's Word. So not only has God's Word come to us in the form of text, but then God's Word has also come in the form of flesh. The Word is text, and the Word is flesh. Most other religions have God's Word as text, but no other religion has God's word as flesh. And the reason that I can trust and delight in God's word as text is that I've seen what he has done as God's word made flesh. Here's what Tim Keller says. When you only see the word made text and you don't realize it's all pointing to Jesus, it's all about Jesus, the word made flesh, the result is always gonna be legalism. You try to obey it, and you try and you try and you try, but it ends up crushing you because you can never live up to it. But when you realize that the word-made text is always and only ultimately about revealing to us the heart of God in the word-made flesh, then you begin to see that everything in the Bible is really about Jesus and about what he's done to save you and redeem you and love you and win you back to himself. And that's when this word begins to lead to life. That's when it becomes the object of our delight. And so we read it and we study it and we meditate on it and we memorize it and we hear it taught, not because we have to, but because it is pointing us to the one who gives life. When I was in college, I was part of a small group Bible study and 
in that group, there were some people who were, you know, had been Christians for a long time, others who were brand new to the faith. And I remember this one time when we got together, um, the leader who was facilitating our time, he led us in this exercise. And basically what he did is he gave us one verse. I think it was from the Gospel of John, a single verse. And he said, what I want you to do for the next 25 minutes, I want you to just do this by yourself. And I want you to write down at least 25 things that you see in this text, 25 observations, insights, things you see, things you notice. And we're all just like, what a bummer. Can we talk about dating or, you know, just something more interesting. And, and so, but we go off, you know, into our little part of where we were. And I, I remember just, you know, sitting down and starting out and it's like, okay, all right, there's the subject and there's the verb. Right? That's number one observation. And then that, you know, I noticed that word kind of sounds a little bit like that word. And so that's number two. And I just kept going. And it was just like I was dreading it. And, you know, I thought it was going to be so, so boring. But the amazing thing that began to happen is I just sat there with one verse, staring at it, letting it talk, like, like just reflecting on it. After five minutes, you think you've rung everything there is to know out of that one verse. Like there, there is nothing else, but you keep going. You keep digging in and it's like 10 minutes in, you start, wow, I never saw that. And, and you see something else. And then 15 minutes in and you just 20 minutes in and you keep peeling away and pressing into what it's saying. And at the end of the 25 minutes, we came back together and our leader, Scott, he asked the question, so what was the insight? Like, what was the thing that, that grabbed you the most? And we ran, went around the room, and for so many of us, it wasn't that thing that we saw right away, right? It was sitting with that text, wrestling for 25 minutes, thinking and reflecting and just letting it almost begin to inhabit you. Okay, that, that's the beauty and the unsearchable riches of God's living word. So for the time that we have left, what I thought we could do is, is, is kind of practice that. And, and I'm going to take one phrase from this psalm. It is the shortest prayer in the middle of the longest psalm. It's five words. I am yours. Save me. Right, last week it was here I am. Use me. This week I am yours. Save me. Uh, a guy named Daryl Johnson, who means so much to me, he has taken this short five-word prayer and let it shape and direct his praying. And um, kind of like in that small group exercise, he just kept digging in and pressing in and letting the text speak and speak and speak and speak. And so what I want to do is invite you into this prayer. And we're going to spend a few minutes doing this. And so uh, I'm going to ask you to either bow your heads or close your eyes. If it is helpful for you to pray eyes open, um, that's not a violation of any rules. Whatever, just whatever is going to help you enter into this posture of being ready to listen, to converse with God. So here we go. I am yours. Save me. Living God, I am yours. I am yours by creation. You made me, I did not make myself. I am not a chemical, biological accident. I am not the product of some random evolutionary process. You formed me in my mother's womb, and you did so for yourself. You made me for yourself. You made me for your own pleasure. I am yours by creation.
I am yours because you chose me. In Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, you chose me before I did anything to earn your choosing, and you chose me before I did anything to unearn your choosing. I am yours by redemption. You have acted to redeem me, to purchase me. When I was caught in sin, you came and you bought me with a price, with the blood of Jesus. You paid the ransom for me. You bought me for yourself. No one can take me from you. You have redeemed me. I am yours by justification. You have already dealt with my case in your courtroom. You have ruled that I am acquitted. You have declared me righteous, justified because of what Jesus has done for me. You have declared that as far as you are concerned, I have kept all the requirements of your holy law. I have not, but you have declared it so. I am yours by reconciliation. You overcame your holy hostility toward my sin and you made me your friend. You have turned me, your enemy, into your friend. Amazing love, how can it be? I am yours by adoption. When I was lost and kept wandering from you, you went searching for for me and you brought me into your home. You could have left me on the street, but no, you adopted me. And now like every other adopted son or daughter, you treat me like Jesus, the only begotten son of the father. You now bestow on me the same status and dignity the only begotten has had from all eternity. You did not have to do it. You did not have to take me into your family, into you as father, son, and Holy Spirit, but you did. I am yours, and I will always be yours. So, living God, save me. Save me from myself. I am my own worst enemy. I keep trying to be my own master. Please do not let me. Save me from the grip of sin, from so often missing the mark, from that twistedness in the soul that that makes us miss the mark and step over the lines. You have rescued us, I know, but we still live with sin all around us. Please do not let me fall back into it again. Do not let me wander from you. Do not let me subtly justify the slightest expression of sin. Save me from the consequences of sin, from guilt, from shame, from alienation from you and others, from addiction to things not of you, from death. You have and are and will. My heart knows that, but help me to live in the full realization of it. And God, how I need you to save me from that deeply rooted sense that I still can and must save myself. I keep thinking I need to add something to the work of the cross. Please save me from sin's great lie. Save me from the evil one, the father of lies, who lies to my soul, who keeps telling me I have to add to the work of the cross, who keeps trying to mess with my mind, who lies to me about you, creating suspicion in my soul, suspicion that you are not really for me, that you are not as good as you say that you are. He is so subtle, so manipulative. Save me from him. Save me from doubting you. You are good, so very good. You have proved that over and over and over again. Save me from discouragement. Save me from resentment. Save me from bitterness and from self-pity. Save me from fear. Do not let me act out of fear. Save me from the false gods of consumerism. Every day I am bombarded by the lie that I need all of this stuff to make me happy. 
I do need some of it, but not anywhere near what is shouted at us every day. Do not let me be seduced by it all. Save me from pride, the pride that swirls all around us. Save me from empty quests, like the quest for power and fame. Do not let me waste time and energy on what does not really matter. Save me from the inappropriate ways of coping with pain that are so ingrained in my soul. They never work. They always lead to more guilt and shame. Free me from habits shaped by the darkness. Save me from the need to be in control. It is so subtle. Please do not let me fall into needing the world to go my way. Free me to keep surrendering control to you. Save my mind. Help me to think as you think. Save my heart. Help me to feel as you feel. Save my will. Help me will as you will. Free me to will your will and yours alone. Oh God, Save me from trying to find my soul's satisfaction in anything but you. I am yours. Save me.